This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Uh, our guests today are uh, Dr. Layton and Dr. Farron. Dr. Layton is the James T. Watkins IV and Elise V. Watkins Professor of Political Science, and he's also affiliated with CSAC. Uh, he has conducted field research in Somalia, Nigeria, Spain, and Estonia. Uh, his latest book is Identity Information, the Russian-Speaking Populations in the Near Abroad. He is currently working on a project in collaboration with Professor Firon on civil wars in the past half century. Uh, and I think it's that project that informs their talk today, which is entitled Postmodern Imperialism. Professor Farron is the Theodore and Francis Gabal Professor in the Humanities uh, and Sciences. He's also a Professor of Political Science and CSOC Affiliated. His research is focused on democracy and internationalist disputes, explanations for interstate wars, and most recently the causes of civil and especially ethnic violence. Uh, he is presently working on a book manuscript on civil wars since 1945. So let's all welcome our guests. Thank you very much for having us. Uh, I think that it will work best if, uh, uh, if we allow for you to ask questions as we go along. But to get to the ethical issues or the normative issues which are so... Uh, poignant in dealing with uh, civil wars, uh, it's going to take a little bit of time. So there's going to be some empirical stuff and stuff about our research about the world. Uh, and when I'll, then I'll foreshadow uh, what I think are the principal ethical issues raised by our, our public policy uh, recommendation. Uh, and then I, I hope it'll be open um, open combat, uh, and you try to come in and discuss uh, uh, what concerns you. So uh, to, the, the paper we published is called Neo-Trusteeship, uh, and uh, we, for the purpose of the talk, called a modest proposal for governing collapsed states. Um, I, I, I made, we weren't sure if this was a kind of a, just informal talk or like present with PowerPoint type stuff. So, kind of, inter, you know, uh, midway between the two, I made some copies and, of what, what you would have seen if it had been a PowerPoint presentation. So, we don't, there's not enough for everybody, but if you share, there's probably, uh, probably okay. The motivation for uh, our research project uh, is rather simple. Uh, there have been 127 civil wars in the world from 1945 to 1999, uh, affecting 73 countries, and something like 17 million deaths uh, from these wars. Uh, we define a civil war uh, as, a, uh, as, a, as a combat between a state and a set of militias uh, seeking either to capture the state, uh, to separate from the state, or to change radically the policies of the state, in which at least a thousand people get killed, and some of them on each side, so it isn't a massacre. Uh, and uh, interstate wars, in that same period of 17 uh, uh, plus million deaths, there were 25 wars with 3.3 million deaths. Uh, and you might, uh, we've seen the ratio go 
in opposite directions from the first half of the 20th century to the second half of the 20th century, where intrastate wars have become the uh, uh, dominant or predominant form of warfare. Civil wars differ in many ways from interstate wars, uh, but one of the crucial ways from the point of view uh, that we're going to develop uh, is that they're durable. Since 1945, on average, there have been 2.3 new civil wars each year, uh, but only 1.7 are resolved. Uh, so we get a successive accumulation uh, of unresolved wars, although in the past several years uh, there have been uh, a significant number of resolutions. If you can look at figure one on the next page, uh, there have been some uh, resolutions so the, uh, uh, from almost 30 states in the, uh, in the international system having civil wars uh, going on uh, in the... Uh, more like 45, it's still left. Sorry, 45, it's, uh, it's gone down to about uh, 28, 30 in the, uh, uh, in the present period. Uh, so there have been a good number of solutions, but as you can see, the major story is the curve going up, uh, an increasing number of civil wars uh, taking place in the world, um, and um, uh, both in the percentage of countries in the world facing civil wars and the aggregate number. And uh, the policy implications of these civil wars from the point of view of the United States uh, or the OECD, the rich countries, is that insurgencies create international public bads. Uh, these are a set of externalities, the effects of the civil war that go beyond the boundaries of the state in uh, which uh, the violence is taking place. Uh, terrorists with weapons of mass destruction or financing for weapons of mass destruction uh, have somewhat uh, open range uh, in states uh, which are ill-governed, collapsed, uh, or in warfare. Uh, refugee flows uh, to the, um, uh, especially to Europe, uh, are a tremendous public policy concern, uh, not only uh, for, for the horrors of the refugees, uh, but for uh, uh, but for uh, social services in uh, Western Europe. Uh, there, uh, there are uh, places where drug smuggling uh, and epidemics. Uh, and uh, all sorts of, uh, of strife uh, that, uh, that goes beyond the boundaries uh, in which the war took place uh, makes these civil wars a worry not only for the states that are experiencing them, uh, but for uh, all states and the major states in the international arena. And thus, uh, there's an international interest beyond a humanitarian perspective in cauterizing early civil war violence and engaging in a process called nation building. Uh, so it's uh, not merely to be nice, it's not international social welfare, it's self-interest, uh, which involves the, uh, uh, the, we'll call them the P5, the, 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 the powerful states in the United Nations with the veto power, uh, that gets them interested in cauterizing uh, civil wars and involved in nation building. And as we can see from the table and from the next slide, uh, that the United Nations uh, Department of Peacekeeping Operations, excoriated by John Bolton uh, and uh, other um, uh, and others in the world, in fact, excoriated by people within the United Nations system at all, it's a constantly we constantly go back to the United Nations Department of Peacekeeping Operations uh, because it's the nation builder of last resort. 
that we have to do something. Uh, we, uh, we all say we have to do something, and then someone has to do it. Uh, and who is there to do it uh, but the uh, Department of Peacekeeping Operations. And they've gotten increasingly sophisticated over the years in dealing with these uh, issues, and, uh, and they've been relied upon, if you look at the next slide, for an increasing number of issues. Uh, so however much it's excoriated by Ambassador Bolton, it has, this organization has been indispensable in organizing uh, peacekeeping operations uh, in a new international setting. There were a series of disasters that the Department of Peacekeeping Operation faced in uh, Somalia, in Rwanda, and especially in uh, Srebrenica, uh, that these were uh, embarrassing, humiliating disasters uh, for the United Nations and terrible, um, uh, with terrible consequences for the people who were living in these countries. Uh, and the uh, Secretary General got one of the leading uh, international diplomats who became quite important in U.S. policy, in uh, Af U.N. policy in uh, Afghanistan and then in Iraq, uh, Lakhdar Brahimi, uh, who uh, chaired a committee, a commission, uh, to review the Department of Peacekeeping Operations and to see how it might do better. Uh, and it's amazing, as a document, uh, it, that year 2000 might be thought of as a, as a sea change in United Nations writing. Uh, it stopped being this bureaucratese complimenting everything anyone has ever done, saying how nice they were, uh, and actually was highly self-critical of, uh, of the organization with very clear uh, 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 policy prescriptions for change. And basically they saw a couple of problems in the way peacekeeping operations uh, were uh, voted on in the Security Council and then implemented. Uh, the first was a commitment gap. The P5 basically would say, uh, yes, um, uh, we've got, we see this on CNN, this is a disaster, this is terrible, uh, we have to do something about it. And they vote to do something about it, and then they give paltry amount of funds for it. Uh, so their consciences are resolved, and they don't really think about the link between their ambitions uh, and the funding. Uh, and the P5 has consistently, or had consistently, underfunded uh, very, very complex missions. The UNISOM uh, Somali mission number two involved um, uh, a major effort at rebuilding a state that had collapsed, uh, much bigger than UNISOM one, uh, with much less of a budget. Uh, and they didn't seem to worry about the link between the budget and the commitment as long as they uh, had high uh, goals. Second was, a, was a, maybe a consequence of the commitment. Who was the they? Mm, the, the, the P5 uh, were, were authorizing these missions. There's a P5 or the permanent, five permanent members of the Security Council. Sorry. Um, uh, and probably as a, a consequence of the commitment gap, uh, there was, and John Bolton did a, uh, just a devastating uh, a critique of this in uh, foreign affairs, uh, what the UN people call mission creep. Uh, that is, you send in 50 uh, peacekeepers uh, to monitor something, and all your job is, is to monitor some agreement, and then 30 of them get killed, and then you have another resolution saying, well, we've got to do some um, uh, robust action uh, against the killers of, uh, of, uh, of these uh, UN troops, and they, they up the ante. And every time there is a failure in the field uh, that goes back to security 
Security Council, they raised the ante, and all of a sudden you started off with 50 people observing a, a peace accord, and all of a sudden you have um, uh, 3,000 people running a country. Um, and the, the, uh, the, the failures of the, uh, of the co- because of the commitment gap have pushed on a creeping um, uh, broadening of a mission uh, that uh, is beyond what Brahimi and his uh, uh, cohorts uh, believed, uh, beyond what the uh, UN uh, peacekeeping department peacekeeping operation uh, could uh, manage. The answer in the Brahimi report, in one sense, was face reality. The big line in the Brahimi report is the Secretary General should tell the P5 what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. I didn't get it quite right. Do you have the phrase? Um, and, uh, and that uh, the, the, the Secretary General had an obligation to tell the, the powerful states, uh, you're, you're not doing this right. If you want to go into Rwanda, this is what you've got to do, uh, to be more upfront with what every mission would cost. And indeed, uh, uh, Kofi Annan's refusal to go into Iraq uh, again and again was really a uh, a reflection of the Brahimi message, uh, and that is uh, that unless you're giving us real resources, uh, we're going to be made fools of going in uh, without, uh, without the proper uh, tools. And uh, not only face reality, uh, but uh, a notion that the UN troops, especially in Chapter 7, that is, uh, beyond peacekeeping, but peacemaking, uh, once you get into peacemaking, you can't just set, send troops there uh, with rules of engagement that say, don't shoot unless shot upon. Uh, you have to have rules of engagement uh, that are more proactive. And they called this robust rules of engagement, which turned UN troops not only into peacekeepers, but actually to, into warriors. Uh, so this was a, a major change in the way uh, the UN was thinking of itself and of its troops. Uh, there were a set of problems, despite the excellence of the report, that were unresolved. Uh, once you have robust rules of engagement, the UN is no longer an impartial agent out there. It actually has to take sides. It's actually fighting against some militias. And if you're fighting against militias, you're no longer a mediator in the dispute. You're actually a participant in the dispute. Uh, and so the impartiality was compromised. Second is that the UN was not really suited for the kinds of robust uh, rules of uh, uh, engagement uh, that uh, Brahimi hoped uh, they would deploy. And the major reason for this is that uh, uh, the UN is not, uh, does not have like a war room down there on, uh, on 41st Street uh, that, uh, uh, that can make quick decisions uh, on uh, difficult field issues. One commander in Somalia said, uh, the first thing I told my successor was never get shot at on a weekend because there's no one in the United Nations uh, uh, that will answer your call if you need some kind of change. Uh, so, uh, for, so when we ran this uh, dual key policy in Bosnia, every single bombing uh, target had to be approved in New York as well as uh, um, in the NATO forces. Uh, getting an approval for any bombing in New York uh, was like getting cross town in New York. Uh, it was uh, something that not even Giuliani could solve. Uh, and uh, and so uh, there was a sense that there was a need for new doctrine uh, for uh, intervention, uh, that, the, that the corrections of the Brahimi report were not really uh, satisfactory. And before we get to our corrections, I'm going to have to say something about what Jim and I have 
found over the past several years about the causes of civil war because you can't really think about uh, what the solution is unless you understand what the problem is about. So excuse this diversion and uh, some of my uh, freshman students out there are going to hear this for the nth time. Uh, uh, that there are three theories out there uh, that, uh, that we uh, sought to uh, evaluate with a cross-national uh, data set, that is for every country every year, uh, uh, asking whether there was an onset or not, and seeking to find what differentiated country years in which there were onsets from country years in which there were no onsets to sort of get some hold on what, was, uh, uh, what were the conditions uh, that made civil war onset. Uh, uh, more highly probable. And the first thesis out there associated with Samuel Huntington and others uh, is a clash of civilizations. Uh, if you have populations uh, that hate each other for a thousand years, this is what every journalist reported in Kosovo, for example, uh, if, if they hated each other for a thousand years, uh, or if they spoke a different language, or if they had a different religion, uh, or if there was a certain demographic pattern, 60% uh, one group and 20% another group, uh, uh, this was the recipe for civil war. So we ran every single way you can run this, uh, uh, these sets of conjectures uh, by the different demographic patterns, by cultural distance. We gave every group in the country a, a kind of a, a cultural address. And we said if the addresses were further apart, uh, were they more likely to be in conflict, uh, violent conflict. And however much we tried to squeeze blood out of this onion, uh, we couldn't find very much uh, that differentiated countries with, cla with supposed clashes of civilizations and those without clashes of civilizations if we wanted to know which countries were more susceptible to civil war onset. The next uh, sort of uh, 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 set of conjectures is around grievances. Uh, and uh, I purposely picked up this place that was ripe for civil war. Uh, does anyone know where this picture is from? U.S., I guess. Yeah. Probably right here. Well, it's in the East Bay. Uh, if you call the East Bay right here, I'll, I'll accept that. But, but Berkeley was right for civil war. Uh, uh, and, uh, and what we did is we said, uh, we asked, if we knew the degree of economic inequality, religious or linguistic oppression, uh, or any sort of uh, grievance in the society, uh, now I'm going to have to be careful here. All civil wars are built on grievances. So grievances are ubiquitous. The, the question we asked is, if you could objectively measure the level of difference, would the level of difference give you an insight in which countries are more level of grievance? Uh, would the level of grievance give you insight of which countries were more likely to be in civil war than, than those with, a, say, a lower level of grievance? And we tried to objectify this in every way we could, and we couldn't find anything. Uh, so grievances had uh, no... And if we knew the level of grievance, it wouldn't allow us uh, very well to, uh, uh, to, uh, to uh, uh, differentiate countries uh, that had civil wars onsets from those that didn't. Uh, and uh, this is quite important because a great deal of peacekeeping operation efforts, a great deal of them is to solve grievances. Uh, the first thing you do when a, uh, when a UN operation goes in there is say, why are these people upset? And if we can alleviate this upsetness, uh, that this would be a solution. It may be a solution, uh, 
Uh, but we should be skeptical of that as a solution uh, if, in fact, we can't find any uh, uh, clear relationship between level of grievance. Uh, can, and can I just uh, add to that? So, yeah, yeah, so, so the, the traditional kind of UN peacekeeping theory is that conflicts within societies arise because of conflicts between social forces within the country, and that what you need to do to get peace is to mediate, uh, come, you know, figure out how to help the, the, the social forces come to a bargain. Um, and there are some cases uh, for which that theory is, you know, relatively more maybe applicable. The central, some of the Central American uh, UN interventions or peacekeeping operations in El Salvador, Guatemala maybe, uh, applies more. Uh, but it turns out, or what, what David will go and argue, is that there's an, a whole another big set of cases where uh, the Civil War has really uh, either happened because the state collapsed or helped collapse the state, where uh, grievances may be one problem, but it's not anything like a sufficient condition for uh, getting civil peace. Um, it, it's, a, it's a kind of a selection bias. Journalists uh, go to a civil war zone, and the first thing they ask is why you're fighting. And the only answer could be the grievances. Uh, so journalists have a uh, journalistic process is one which will evoke the grievances as having causal value. But, but, but you know that what they don't do is they don't go next door to the next the country next door where there's no civil war and ask, you know, uh, what are you pissed off about? And and our, our what, what what our suspicion is that uh, by and large you can go to pretty much any country and find uh, people who are very upset about something, usually uh, reasonably so. Um, so it's not that we're saying that grievances aren't a motivating factor for the people involved in fighting, but we're not finding um, leverage on distinguishing which countries are the grievances going to be translated into action. I, I, can't, uh, I, I can't stop myself, but give an example. When I did my field work in northeastern Estonia, uh, the Russian-speaking population, about 95% of the population in the northeast, uh, was having a referendum uh, for uh, for autonomy and separation uh, from uh, from Estonia, which had declared itself a unitary state, uh, and journalists were there like uh, uh, like birds of prey, uh, waiting to report on the imminent civil war. And uh, when nothing happened, they all went to Moldova uh, and reported uh, that the demand uh, uh, of the Russians for autonomy from the Moldovan linguistic regime was the cause, not telling us that same conditions existed uh, in, um, in Estonia uh, with different results. So it may have been a necessary condition, the grievance, but certainly not sufficient. Um, so without the grievance story and without the... Um, uh, without the cultural difference story, uh, what started to come up in our models as significant are a set of variables that we put together to tell a story that said states are susceptible to civil wars when the conditions are ripe for a certain type of, of rural rebellion which, uh, which we call or is called insurgency, where conditions are ripe uh, for small bands of, uh, of rebels to, to thrive. Uh, and under those conditions, no matter what the level of grievance, or at least with a minimal level of grievance, uh, uh, if the state is extremely weak with a low information army or very unstable, 
uh, that these uh, small growths will metastasize into, uh, into groups that can kill a lot of people. And if they start killing a lot of people and the state is weak with an information-poor army, it's likely to kill as many innocents uh, as, uh, as rebels uh, and thereby, in a sense, uh, 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 increase the recruitment base of these small rebel bands. Uh, so the conditions that favor insurgency uh, uh, seem to be uh, uh, the best predictor. Uh, on, in terms of the variables uh, that explain this, one set of variables are things like mountains and non-contiguous territory. That is, where it's hard to find rebels, states are more likely to have civil wars. Another set of variables are signs of a very weak state. Uh, uh, if a state has just been independent uh, in the last couple of years and hasn't yet uh, developed uh, full control over the territory, it's extremely susceptible. So, for example, after 1991, uh, with the colla- collapse of the Soviet Union, there were a whole set of new states. 30% of them had civil wars within two years. Uh, so, uh, uh, so uh, and if you think about the 1940s, the new states after the Second World War, there are whole sets of civil wars in India, uh, in Pakistan, in uh, Indonesia. Uh, so, new states are are weak states, and under conditions of having weak states, rebel organizations, rurally based. Uh, 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 have an opportunity to challenge the state. And Jim has a terrific paper of, on w- why they would want to challenge the state quickly uh, rather uh, than, uh, uh, than uh, wait for a long time. Uh, so uh, when population is high, uh, uh, surveillance Surveillance becomes more difficult, and the higher the population, the easier it is for an insurgency to hide. Uh, and oil exports, we argue, uh, we have a particular interpretation of oil exports, that it's, and this is important for the rest of our talk when we get to the normative level, if I ever get that far, is, uh, is that we see this as an example, if you have large amounts of oil exports, you don't have to tax your own population because all you have to do is tax ExxonMobil. And all you have to do is tax ExxonMobil, not your own population. Uh, in a sense, you don't develop an administrative apparatus uh, that goes into the countryside uh, uh, because all you're doing is taxing um, uh, a multinational corporation. So, st- so states that don't tax their own populations tend to be weaker, and states that have large amount of oil tend not to po- uh, tax their own populations. Finally, the... Yeah. I can't believe that one goes. <laughs> there are many things that are different about a state that has oil, and that one seems like a very relatively minor one. Um, I would say that uh, that the multiple interpretations of that uh, are uh, are impressive, and I'll agree. But uh, but we would say we would say that one of the factors is, and that's going to play. We wouldn't say that's causal. Having oil isn't causal, but it's one of the factors that tends to lead that tends to lead to a state that's weaker. I agree with that. But it's that's all with economic strength in, in, in different ways of managing their country and outside influences and a whole lot of things mm-hmm. that are different from whether or not they can tax their rural people. So I agree, oil is an important indicator, but I wouldn't say it's because they can't tax the people in the mountains or don't. 
and don't build that. I didn't say that they can't. I say they have less incentive to. I, I'm, that's your talk. I'm okay. Sorry. No, I, I, I will. No, defer you think, just one thing I think I couldn't take. Without. Nope, it's a reason. It's a reasonable. Yeah, no, you're, you're 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 right. There are other things that are different. And one of the differences is they have all this money. Exactly. Uh, and and if you have that money, you can plow that into repressing your population more. So there's right. two effects. One of which. Uh, is like suppressing civil war or, or maybe lowering it by making the state stronger by giving it more money. But the other is that you're not developing uh, um, a kind of well, what, what David said, an administrative apparatus that uh, penetrates society, gets better information, and so on. So what the, the real prediction on, on oil is that for a given level of per capita income, uh, you expect, say, Portugal and... Uh, um, uh, Venezuela may have similar levels of per capita income. Our argument is that the, uh, you know, once you control for income, the oil border is a weaker state uh, because of uh, for, for this reason. So it's really you should see the effect of oil exports once you control for per, per capita income. But these, you know, a whole bunch of these very rich, uh, you know, small population Gulf monarchies have uh, relatively little civil war, and it's because they have all this uh, money they can use to repress. Yeah, well, yeah. Norway is about as social a country as you But Nor Norway is a, a rich country, and it has a strong state, and it developed a strong state apparatus before it got oil. Bruce? Yes. People yeah. wonder why the, oh. uh, why the Saudi Arabian government can't figure out what all these guys off in the rural areas are thinking and why they're going off to sign up. Well, a country like Jordan has really good information about all the various Islamist groups in their country. This is the most compelling explanation I've heard before that. Bruce? I wonder if you could say a little bit more about exactly what you mean by the phrase weak state independent of uh, the ex-post realization of uh, disruption, conflict, and so forth. But one of the things that's true of the sorts of states that you're describing as weak states is that their leaders stay in office for a really long time. In that sense, they, from the leader's perspective, they seem like a strong state. Yeah, uh, we, uh, 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 let's, let me be uh, fairly careful here. Uh, that one of the indicators, for example, of a weak state is a substantial change in regime of, uh, of a year or so earlier. So if there's a substantial change in the institutions of the state in year, uh, call it uh, year one, then in year two and year three, we call that instability. That is, as a signal to potential rebels, with changed institutions of the state, a changed regime, uh, that, the, uh, that the state will be more vulnerable than if the regime had, had, the, uh, had the same institutions. So, there, so one indicator of, um, of a weak state is... Uh, either a new state or a state that's changed its regime in the last couple of years. We also consider low GDP, G we also interpret low GDP per cap as an indicator of a weak state, uh, seeing this as, uh, uh, as one in which the army doesn't have the information uh, uh, capacities as, uh, as a richer state. And if it doesn't have the information capacities, it's likely in its counterinsurgency uh, to uh, to kill uh, a higher proportion of innocents uh, with implications for recruitment of the uh, uh, for the rebels. Can, can, can I can I can I come in on can I, uh, Bruce? I can't see. Okay, there you go. Hi. So uh, I think you know David was just telling you about some of the indicators, but what you know you're asking what is it? What does it mean 
I don't know, theoretically, and I think actually there we have a pretty straightforward answer. It's For us, it, it concerns the ability to do counterinsurgency effectively, which you could say it's the for a given amount of resources or money, uh, how many rebels do you capture? And so it should be understood as weak state relative to the conditions, so kind of the same bureaucratic apparatus in a very mountainous, tough terrain, uh, terrain country would be by, judged by us as weaker in the sense we're using it here than one in a flat country. But it's basically, you know, we want to cash it out in terms of ability to capture rebels for a given uh, kind of financial input. I'd like to get through yeah. two, more, two more slides uh, because then we'll... The ethics in society or ethics at noon part of the story will come, come in. But we, we think that there's some need for collective action. That's sort of our causal story. Uh, has something to do with the conditions that favor insurgency rather than grievance uh, or, uh, or cultural difference. And because of the externalities that we discussed uh, uh, of... Uh, uh, of civil wars, uh, we think some form of international collective action uh, is required to, uh, to address these public bads. Uh, there is a colleague of ours, I don't think he's here, Jeremy Weinstein, uh, who is, uh, who is uh, advocating a line which he calls autonomous recovery and basically says you're going to screw up if you try to solve these wars. Uh, and the best thing to do is to let them run their course, someone eventually will have the ability to project power and have the ability to project power uh, and then be able to, uh, uh, to rule the country. Uh, and we just have to wait, wait in these countries for, for a victor. And once there's a victor, then, then the, the war will really end as opposed to mediation where the war never really ends. That's the, the, the Jeremy Weinstein autonomous recovery position. Jim and I... Uh, just don't have the uh, inner um, uh, sort of uh, guts to say, just wait 15 years until two and a half million Somalis are killed, uh, and then there'll be, someone will come that will project power. Uh, uh, let the uh, Al-Qaeda uh, folk live in the uh, uh, inter-riverine area between the Chibeli and Juba for the next 15 years, uh, uh, but that's okay because we can't do a whole lot uh, uh, and eventually someone will win and bring control. Uh, it's a matter of how much you're willing to wait and how, long the co well, how big the costs are uh, of waiting. And our view is that some kind of international collective action is crucial, uh, not only to save those countries, but to save the rest of the world from the externalities of those civil wars. But you ought to hear uh, Weinstein's position um, because it's a serious one. So we, we suggest something we call neo-trusteeship uh, and more uh, amongst ourselves we call it, between ourselves we call it postmodern imperialism. It's a new form of international rule. It's a form of collective action which we've advocated. Unlike classical imperialism, this postmodern uh, post imperialism uh, is, uh, uh, is one in which, uh, uh, in which there is some kind of international mandate. Uh, and that is more like uh, the, uh, the, the League of Nations uh, uh, trust uh, mandates uh, or the uh, United Nations uh, trust territories. Uh, uh, that is, there has to be some international, uh, uh, some international uh, mandate that allows this to occur. No state can be an imperialist or uh, uh, settling a civil war uh, based on its own um, 
own announcement that we're doing this by ourselves. Uh, uh, this suggests something about our Iraq policy, but uh, we can talk about that later. Second, no single foreign ruler, uh, but a hodgepodge of rulers. Uh, that is, uh, there'll be some, uh, some country organization dealing with the Ministry of Finance, another one dealing with the customs, uh, another one dealing with policing, mm-hmm. another organization uh, dealing uh, with, uh, uh, with uh, uh, or a few of them, uh, with uh, uh, robust rules of engagement. So it'll be a set of organizations, some of them the UN, some of them NGOs, some of them states, that will be collectively running the country, and it won't be, that's the postmodern part of it, uh, that it won't be uh, a single country uh, like uh, the UN and the League of Nations did, gave uh, uh, Cameroon to France. And, and this, isn't, this isn't necessarily optimal, but it's a recognition of the reality that in a lot of these cases, there's really no one state that's willing to take on the full burden of uh, reconstructing or helping to rebuild a state. So and given that the, there are these, we're arguing, kind of broad externalities, bad externalities to leaving complete political disorder or a great deal of violence in these places, the natural solution is burden sharing, and that will be realized through the kind of uh, hodgepodge that Dave was talking about. And unlike classical imperialism, uh, that no country is going to use this for glory, uh, to say this shows the greatness of Germany or the greatness of Britain. The sun never, the sun never sets on, uh, on the uh, UN empire. Uh, the, the, this, p- countries aren't taking this for glory. The countries are taking this because they're scared stiff of the externalities and the effect of the externalities on their own, um, uh, on their own population or within their own border. Uh, and there is a desire, therefore, for as quick an exit as possible uh, so that there's a return to governance uh, by uh, the people who live within the boundaries of the state or who are citizens of the state. Uh, so it's much closer to trusteeship than it is to imperialism, but it's not quite like trusteeship because there's no trustee. It's a kind of a consortia uh, of, uh, of uh, partial trustees. And now I'm going to foreshadow what I think are three major ethical issues uh, that are involved uh, or implications of the course of action uh, that we recommend. Uh, First, uh, are we advocating a policy that violates fundamental principles of self-determination? That is... that is saying to the Somalis or the Rwandans or the uh, uh, or the uh, Timorese, uh, you know, uh, sorry, uh, we're going to rule this country for a set of years until you guys show that you can do it for yourselves. Uh, is there a kind of a violation uh, uh, of uh, of who of who has a right to rule in that country? Uh, is this an imposition of international? Uh, uh, international rule uh, for the right of, uh, of people in the country to rule. I'm not so worried about that one. Uh, but I'm much more worried about the next two. Uh, because we argue that the fundamental problem uh, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, uh, civil war prone states is that the states are weak. We can argue that the solution to this is to set up a system in which the people within the states are, ta- are being taxed, either intertemporally, that is, going to be later taxed for what's being given, but to have them pay for the peacekeeping. And 
there, there are a lot of ways this could be thought about, but I'll say it in the most brutal way, and that is that if they're getting, they should not get peacekeeping for free, and one of the main reasons they shouldn't get it for free is because if they, if we, the international gendarmerie builds up the capacity to tax its own population, it's remedying the problem that got them into the civil war. Uh, but it seems like the first set of actions for an international gendarmerie to think about is how are you going to tax these people who already faced devastation in their homeland. Uh, uh, The uh, UNDP, the United Nations Development Program people, think that we're heartless uh, in recommending uh, taxation. They should be given uh, uh, the basic human needs first, and let's worry about um, uh, them paying for it later. We kind of sprung, you kind of, well, I don't know the way this worked out. We haven't didn't really explain the proposal. Yes, first. I know. So, uh, so, so it should be said that the claim is not you go in and your intervention and start trying to extract taxes from uh, from you know Sierra Leone after it's devastated, but rather that you build into the agreement up front that after that gradually over time, as the state reconstructs and can is generating tax revenue, those funds are gradually shifting to support for an external peacekeeping presence in order to give the the local, you know, the government in question incentive to kind of get its act together on, um, uh, and, and the things David was just mentioning about developing kind of capacity for rule. Uh, but this would be a gradual process, so we're not, we're not saying, like, go in there and do it right away. Anyway, go ahead. I was, one second, Bruce, I was foreshadowing uh, this uh, uh, because, because of the nature of this group. And third, the third ethical issue uh, is that when we deal with the issue of how do you get states to do this if there's no glory, no money, uh, uh, how do you get states to participate in these enterprises? Um, and, uh, and I'm going to deal with that problem in, in a bit, but to foreshadow the ethical problem is most states uh, will be reluctant to send troops to do robust rules of engagement if their troops and their leaders are going to be subject to the kinds of ju- the kinds of justice that the ICC or other international uh, 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 judicial regimes uh, uh, are um, are are keen on supporting, and therefore, is there we ask, is there a way uh, to make the uh, the uh, uh, criminal possibilities of the uh, of the troops that are involved? Uh, less drastic than many of the people seeking uh, full international justice uh, would want. Uh, Or to put it more bluntly, uh, uh, the most effective uh, uh, constabulary uh, in uh, in Bosnia was the uh, Royal Ulster Constabulary, uh, and they were good not because they were nice. Uh, and if they were subject to the kinds of oversight uh, that people seeking international justice uh, might demand, uh, maybe the Royal Ulster Constabulary would never have appeared. Bruce? Can you say a little bit about parastatics associated with having people pay for the peacekeeping at some point? through taxation. Uh, so, so the standard model of taxation tells us that the higher the tax rate, the lower the labor effort relative to labor, uh, and therefore uh, the poorer per capita income is. Per capita income is one of your, low per capita is one of your indicators of weak state. 
high taxes exacerbate low income. They do other things. So I was wondering whether it's clear what the trade-offs look like or... Well, if you read Buena de Mesquita's uh, Logic of Political Survival, it would be easy to use that model to do this, but we haven't done it. No, I, I'd say, I mean, the, <laughs> I'd say that, I mean, you're going to have to, um, if the state's going to stand on its own, it has to raise tax revenue that it will use to, to um, pay for and, and, and uh, fund a, a basic security apparatus. So, so, you know, and actually, and if actually, if you look at the amounts of money that um, a well-ordered state spends on the judge, you know, police and just, justice system, it's actually incredibly small. So the idea that these taxes are going to be crippling to growth, I think, is, is implausible. Being really confused, I think it would really help me if you took an example, Iraq, maybe Haiti, maybe Rwanda, and said, here's what... Okay, we're going to go there. Do. We're going to actually go there, but not with a country, but we're going to actually make the proposal. Maybe I made a mistake by foreshadowing the ethical issues before telling you what the proposal well, was. too much in the theoretical yeah. to see what you really mean. Okay, that's a reasonable... So, uh, uh, rather than take you through a kind... I think you'll get, you'll get it by... by uh, uh, going through the proposal, but I'll try to pepper it with examples so you'll actually try to see it in the ground. Um, if you think of a case like Sierra Leone, Liberia, Somalia, uh, uh, and S CNN starts reporting uh, uh, chaos in the country uh, and, uh, and, the, and the near collapse of the state or the challenge of the state by rebels uh, uh, and, uh, and the capital city unable to control the violence in the countryside, uh, this issue gets brought up uh, in the Security Council uh, uh, for, uh, for the question of, uh, of having international peacekeepers. Um, and the, the problem is that the major powers, the P5, will not want to send their own troops there. So how do you get to... Who's going to go there and put out the fires? Uh, the, the first job the Secretary General has in setting up, or the Department of Peacekeeping Operation has, is, is actually getting uh, troops there. There are a set of countries in the world, Bangladesh, Pakistan, uh, two of, Jordan, are three of the uh, usual suspects. Uh, and what they do is they make a kind of a trade-off. Uh, they've got very large armies that they can't afford. Uh, they get about $85 a day per troop. Uh, if they serve in the uh, United Nations uh, uh, peacekeeping force. Uh, and so they're able to get uh, sort of lines off of their recurrent budget by agreeing to have uh, uh, troops, troops there. Uh, and so uh, the major powers kind of fund it, uh, and the troop-contributing countries uh, uh, actually get killed or, uh, or uh, their troops get killed uh, by... Uh, uh, by uh, 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 by participating in the cauterization of the violence. Uh, they become critical mass forces. And then to show that they're true international uh, um, brothers, the Norwegians and Swedes and Dutch send three to ten people there. They're called the onesie-twosie states. Uh, and uh, so you have Jordanians, uh, you have Norwegians, um, and, uh, and uh, four or five other countries. And some 
country is given, or some general is given uh, command of the troops, but not command of the peacekeeping operation, which is given to a person called uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the uh, special representative of the secretary general. Uh, and how do you get the major powers to do this? Well, the original idea for the UN was it shouldn't be any major power that had any interest in it, or else they would be biased. Turns out that if major powers have no interest in it, they won't do it. So the French, uh, the French do Cote d'Ivoire and the British do, um, uh, do uh, Sierra Leone. And when it comes to Liberia, uh, everyone looked at the Americans and they said, oh, America is ours. Uh, and the Americans uh, become, become uh, as was described to us in the UN, the 911. That's not the date of uh, the disaster, but the phone number that's called if the TCC, troop contributing country, um, uh, troops uh, get into trouble, you know who to call and will do the evacuations uh, or the, the bombing. And they generally keep outside of the, the, um, uh, the main area of combat, but they're there to come in if there's disaster. Uh, it, we're supposed to end at one, right? So, yeah. So if you're, you're going to have to really oh, just. Okay. You're going to have to summarize them. I'll summarize. Okay. Uh, so the first problem is getting, getting, getting troops. But the second problem, it's quite obvious, is coordination. If you have a dozen different organizations, I think I counted 85 different organizations involved in, uh, in the peacekeeping in Somalia, including NGOs, uh, states, uh, UN organizations, uh, and coordinating these, uh, all these groups uh, is just an, Im an immensely difficult activity. Uh, uh, and, uh, uh, but then... With large numbers of organizations uh, coming from different places in the world, there is a problem of accountability, uh, and and that is uh, uh, that is uh, who takes responsibility if there are if there are uh, sort of human rights violations by the troops, uh, who takes responsibility uh, if uh, if uh, the troops do not do their work. Uh, and there's a massacre in the area. Uh, uh, there is no, there is no there there. There's no organization that is, that can be pointed to as the guilty party. Uh, and if we demand high levels of accountability, how are we going to recruit? If countries really, or the troops really, have to be accountable, the police really have to be accountable uh, to some clear standards of judicial uh, uh, examination, uh, recruitment becomes all the more difficult. And finally, how do you get out? Quick exit is not feasible. And the conditions that created the civil war, given the civil war, are now worse for purposes of state con uh, coherence. And this is why we push a line of taxation uh, uh, that uh, uh, that the extent to which you start building up the taxing authority, a couple, one second, a couple of things happen. Uh, one, if the if if the international organization is taxing, there will be people who will want the tax, local people who will want the chance to actually distribute that tax. So you're building an incentive for locals to want to get rid of this. You might call them this international social welfare producers uh, uh, to get out so they could run the state themselves if there's a, a real taxing uh, capability. Uh, 
Uh, and second, there is an issue of accountability, that if, in fact, uh, you're, you're taxing the people, the people are going to demand, uh, on average, uh, they're going to demand uh, results from the taxation and not merely sit there and expect to just be given uh, whatever the international community wants to give them. We, we argue no on this question uh, and, that, uh, and that, in fact, we think that the international organizations will continue to stay there long after the peacekeeping operation is left as a kind of international surveillance. But we would say that, the, that, that over time, the more... Uh, uh, the, the, over time, the higher percentage of resources going into the production of public goods should be from the population uh, uh, that is being governed. That doesn't mean that international organizations can't raise money around the world uh, uh, for running orphanages, running refugee camps, or whatever. It is to say, though, that in the production of public goods, a higher percentage of the uh, resources uh, should be uh, coming from its own population. So it seems in conclusion that failed states are not a temporary problem, uh, either they're being created on their own in Ivory Coast or being created by great powers, as in Iraq. Uh, and collapsed states uh, become an international uh, collective goods problem. Whether the United States has uh, forced the collapse or they collapsed on their own, uh, that uh, is, if it's either Iraq or, uh, or Cote d'Ivoire, uh, uh, there is a collective good problem. And as uh, the present U.S. president has recognized, uh, that nation building is something that can't be avoided uh, once a state collapses. Uh, they don't autonomously reemerge. Neo trusteeship is a policy recommendation that derives from the theoretical and empirical foundation of the cause of civil wars, uh, and that is that it's, uh, it, 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 re it reacts to the problem of weak states and not to the problem of grievances or demographic adjustment. So we reject policies like Les Gelb, who said the key to, uh, to salvation in Iraq is to have three different states. Uh, uh, there will well, be fewer grievances. I don't think we have a basis for ruling that out. Um, or, you know, I wouldn't... Uh, I mean, I don't know. What do you mean by saying we reject grievance alleviation? I don't think grievance alleviation is bad. It's uh, it's good. You alleviate grievances. Uh, but but in these certain cases, like Afghanistan or Sierra Leone or possibly Cote d'Ivoire, that's the, I thought our argument was that uh, that's not going to be enough. And there's a fundamental problem of of uh, political order uh, that has to be addressed. I was dealing with the Iraq case and that example, not for grievances, but for if you think that the South, the Kurds, uh, or uh, the um, uh, uh, the Sunni center would be three more stable states because of the demographic um, sort of uh, oh, oh, demographic you're, you're, you're differences. You're that it, it doesn't follow that they, that would necessarily be. Yes. Uh, yeah. Past history doesn't suggest that, that those would necessarily be. Or or are they? Uh, yeah. More stable. Well, let me just get this straight. Um, when you're looking at a, a strong state and a weak state. Um, it's and they both have the same grievances. It's the weak state that that will uh, have the civil war rather than well have a higher propensity right. to civil war. But, but but your idea of uh, 
saying that they're not that the grievances aren't significant. I mean, the whole reason that there is a civil war is are because of uh, these grievances. So I, I take a little exception to that. But then, and then the other thing. No, I, well, well, what I just want to say is, of course, grievances. Uh, I think we acknowledge grievances are a necessary condition, but, but. Would, would if we knew that there was a higher level of grievance in state A versus state B, and both of them have the same gross, uh, same uh, uh, wealth, it wouldn't allow us to say the one with a higher level of grievance would be more likely to have a civil war. Okay. We we haven't been able to show that. Okay, and then the other just the comment is that uh, I'm all for the UN, and I think that you know, like you say, this is where we have to. This is what we have to use to to. Um, try and stop some of these problems. But I, I laugh when you say that Kofi Annan or even anyone else that's head of the UN is going to say, uh, even in a stronger tone, which I wish they would do, to the United States especially, that you have to do this and you have to do that. The United States has such a belligerent attitude, and they'll just veto anything. Um, uh, you know, I mean, you can't, you can't, you have to speak in a strong voice to the United States, but it doesn't seem to do any good. You know, actually, you know, our position, um, if, if uh, we had a chance to develop it more, I think, on, on, on the U.N., is actually some ways towards the, you know, it's not the Bush administration position at all, but we are, one of the things we're arguing against uh, real strong U.N. boosters is that the U.N. should not and cannot be the lead agent or actor in interventions in collapsed states where the, where there really isn't where there isn't where the central state is pretty much disintegrated, and that it's a bad idea to do that. And we're actually pushing a rationalization of, of I think we call it you know lead states, which would be a state like the U.S. or Australia in East Timor or the, Fran the French in Cote d'Ivoire or Congo, European Union in Congo, to rationalize a system where really the lead actor in, in this class of cases is a state and not the UN. They're delegated to by the UN. Uh, so I think some of the things we're saying, we're, we're not, we're, we're in, at no point saying uh, the UN should tell, you know, we, we'd, we'd like the, you know, the Bush administration and the U.S. to be more sympathetic to working with uh, the UN peacekeeping, peacekeeping system, which we're proposing changes to or, or rationalizations of. Uh, and, and I guess we think that the, it's in the nature of the reality out there is going to lead and already has led, for example, the Bush administration to, for example, face up to the fact that it has to do state building. Right. Uh, this is a really interesting proposition, and, and I've enjoyed it immensely. A couple of, of clarifications. It strikes me that the major difference that you have from Steve Krasner's position when he proposed shared sovereignty and trusteeship is that Steve's position was that the, that the external actor should remain in for an indefinite period, or I think the words he used were, yeah, indefinite period. And you seem to be, you seem to have uh, an exit strategy which is premised upon taxation. So that's my first question. Uh, second observation, I'm not sure if I agree with you on the concerns about the ICC or other standards of international justice, because the ICC is really not is really not going to, in any event, have any jurisdiction over misbehaving troops, external troops. So, so I don't see that as a, a practical impediment to your position. I think you can, you can strike that off your list. And thirdly, what's your proposal for how the external <coughs> actor, actors or the lead agency, how they, uh, what role they take in developing <coughs> the institutions that they're trying to build up in, in the 
So the third what, point. The, what role does the third party external actor take in rebuilding the institutions? Do they help appoint judges? Um, do they? No, get the, the the lead agent we're talking about. We're really conceiving of this as the military, the the mm -hmm. organizer and and coordinator of the military force to bring a basic level of stability, mm -hmm. in which then the World Bank and the, uh, the EU and USAID and DFID and all these places can come in and do their programs that are supposed to help uh, rebuild basic state institutions. So it's really, it's really producing order as, yes. a, as, a, as a, front, a front line approach right. and then saying the rest follows behind in a coordinated action. Mm -hmm. okay. In line with this, just in the question now, I also don't see why, for your proposal, this issue of accountability of the troops and the ICC and the right, uh, troops obeying the international laws, why that should be a problem. I mean, I guess from an ethical perspective, it's sort of clear that we would like these troops to obey these agreed-upon laws. And given that you have anyway this model of taxation, why not treat it simply as an economic problem, raising the incentives of countries to participate, paying them more, raising the taxes when people pay for it, and then uh, I don't see why this remains a principal problem. Um, it, it, remain, it remains a problem, um, I, I think, uh, because uh, the uh, basic policing uh, in, uh, in uh, peacekeeping is often pretty brutal, um, and whether it's the ICC or any other international overseers, um, uh, that uh, countries uh, would be less likely to support um, uh, sending their own uh, their own police or militias uh, if, in fact, they were going to be uh, scrutinized uh, through judicial proceedings that go beyond their own borders. Uh, however. Uh, uh, that uh, having no accountability, that is, that's why we're pushing for the, for the, uh, um, uh, for even though the lead country might be the Australia and East Timor, that has to be authorized by the UN. So the principle, as with the trusteeship system. Uh, and so that there would have to be some degree of responsibility to oversee, to oversee that. And how to work out the responsibilities of the overseer for to see if its mission is being correctly uh, accomplished, it seems like we have a model for that. And that is there's one lead country that the P5 uh, or four members of the P5 don't trust, uh, and that's Russia. Uh, and when Russia has gone into Abkhazia, uh, the, uh, the UN has demanded uh, over, o oversight uh, uh, organizations uh, to see that the Russian troops aren't doing things which are an embarrassment to the United Nations. And rather than s pick on Russia, my view is that that model of overseeing Russia should be a more general model for all peacekeeping operations. We, we actually need to... Oh, okay. Okay. Is there, is there a class at 1.15? Yeah. Sorry for taking... back for another session? Yeah, bring him back. Uh, we can, we can have to negotiate schedules, so we'll see if we can. Sorry for taking so long. Secretary Rice had one question. Okay. I think yeah. that she should have some. I'm going to skip out of here. I was just going to ask when there isn't an obvious lead nation, 
willing and able to step up with uh, superior capability. What do you do? We don't have a capable lead nation willing to step up in Darfur. The African Union is not sufficient. We, don't, we wouldn't have one in Burundi. Um, and even in places like Haiti and Liberia, where you could argue that uh, the United States has a substantial uh, national interest in bringing back stability, it hasn't been such in recent, recent years that we've been willing to commit our forces over any extended period of time with uh, at, at the numbers that are necessary. You know, the Brazilians are the lead in Haiti right now, uh, and the Africans in, in Liberia. So what do you do when there is a, a country that isn't a Cote d'Ivoire that doesn't have a, uh, a friendly colonial What's the answer? What's the answer to your question? You should know better. I mean, I, I don't know. <laughs> this is your proposal. Now you about it. But I think it's flawed in that respect. I wouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater on the UN. I think you just we just don't have enough P5 or uh, P5 plus Australia willing to step in in every instance where we have a, a well, yeah. conflict. I think this is the, you know this is the basic is the basic problem, and in the article this is based on this is kind of running through the whole thing is the kind of, is the undersupply of. Uh, you know, this political will and willingness to pay. And, and it's not clear. So people like you and I and lots of other people would say, oh, well, you know, the U.S. and other countries should do more. We should intervene in, in Darfur because there's genocide going on that's really bad. On the other hand, the American public may not really care that much in, when it comes down to it. Uh, so, it's, you know, so are the politicians actually, uh, um, you know, who should, who, should, who should they be listening to? Um, uh, you, know, that I, I, you know, I think we should be doing more. Uh, and it would be great if we could figure out ways to convince the U.S. public and European publics to support <laughs> putting our soldiers at risk in, in these kind of situations. But given that, you know, assuming that, that, that you can only do so much with that, uh, we were looking around desperately for some, you know, some, something you could do. And then that's where it's part of what the taxing idea comes out of is like, well, uh, now, I don't think that that's a feasible option for the Sudan case whatsoever. The taxing idea is interesting yeah. because it gets to the problem of, of building back state capacity. But if I may, Susan, uh, the, the, we're not saying uh, that I think it's infeasible for American troops uh, to be playing a major role uh, in Darfur or uh, in Burundi. Uh, it costs about $180 a day to keep an American soldier in these places. Uh, and that there's no way that our force is just too expensive. Uh, that there has to, be a, uh, has to be a contract between the U.S. being the 911 and troop-contributing countries getting the uh, $85 to $100 a day that would support them. And to, to work out that contract would be less of a burden on the American or French or Australian troops uh, and, uh, and one that would take advantage of the international division of, uh, of labor and the cost for putting a, uh, troops on the ground. I, but that's basically the status quo. And I thought what you're saying is if we're going to go to the you know, trusteeship, we need on the military side to have a, a strong, capable lead nation. As, not, as, as the 911, there has to be the lead nation taking the, taking the responsibility in contract <laughs> with TCCs. Right. Uh, so it has to be a contract between those two parties, both working under the auspices of, say, the United Nations that's authorizing it. So my answer to your question would be, in the case of Darfur, let the Africans be the, the straight-leg infantry doing this. Your TCCs, but have NATO provide some commanders. I to totally agree. I totally agree. Uh, thank you very much for letting us stay longer.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.